Thank you, Seth, very much for leading us in worship. We'll be reading from Colossians 1, 24 through 29, though our message this morning will primarily be a biography about William Tyndale for Reformation Day, I do want to use this text and draw from it because there are truths we can draw from it to apply to this life of this wonderful man whom God used so mightily. Read along with me. You can follow along, rather, in the text behind me. This is what Paul says. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Will you bow with me? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the fact that we have your word. Not only have you revealed it to us, as Seth mentioned, we could not have known you otherwise had you not revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you've also worked through your word to create faith within us, and you've saved us. Lord, your word says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Lord, we also thank you that it's been translated into the language that we speak. Thank you for the Bible in English, and thank you that at the cost of many lives, it's been come to us, it has come to us, Lord. Thank you that men of old did not value even life so much as they valued truth. We thank you in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. So this is October 31st, what we call Reformation Sunday. Why do we call it Reformation Sunday? I thought it was called Halloween, right? Reformation Sunday. So October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the, what he called the 95 theses. That was really 95 arguments against what he was seeing in the Roman Catholic Church of that day. Discrepancies, things that weren't lining up. And so he nailed them up to the door at the, the castle door of uh, Church Wittenberg Church, really to be um, debated among academics. That's why he nailed them up in Latin. If I'm not mistaken, it was in Latin. Well, they got widely distributed, and from church history, we know that that was really the spark that started what we call the Reformation. People tried to reform the Roman Catholic Church of that day. As you know, they would have nothing of it. They did not believe they needed reforming. So what came out of that was Protestantism, people protesting against the inaccuracies, the sinfulness they were seeing, things that they were seeing in the church of that day that didn't line up with Scripture. And so that's where... We were born out of, as it were, and it's why it's a very special day for us, because the Word of God was unlocked. It was given out to the masses at that point, because people finally got it in their hands and started translating it into the language of the common people. William Tyndale will be our focus of this Reformation Sunday. As you might remember, last Reformation Sunday from last year, we talked about um, John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation. Why? Well, because he was the first person to translate the Bible into English, but it was from the Latin. William Tyndale was the first person to translate it into English from the original Greek and Hebrew, which actually produced a much better translation. Praise God for John Wycliffe. He did his best with what he had. God continued to be a blessing to all of us through men like William Tyndale. So I've titled this William Tyndale, Father of the English Bible. You and I enjoy many modern conveniences in our day, don't we? Without really thinking about 
who made this thing? How did he come up with this invention? How does, even, how does it even work? I use my cell phone every day. I don't really think about who invented it. I don't even really think much about how he made it work. I just pick it up and use it. Also with the microwave. Also with my refrigerator. I give very little thought to who invented them and how they even work. I just plug them in and say, I love this thing and I'm going to use it to get through my day. We simply enjoy the fact that they're there. We do the same with our Bibles. And so I want to help you learn and know one of the primary men that God used so that you can enjoy your English Bible. Um, I hope that afterwards you will not just pick up your English Bible and use it. Though I want you to do that, I hope you will appreciate it even more. I think you will. William Tyndale was born in 1494 and grew up in Gloucestershire, which is in southwest England. Tyndale, of course, started school, like most of us do, from a very young age, but he went to Oxford at the age of 12 and studied at Oxford for 10 years and was a scholar. He was very gifted in languages as well. He ended up learning roughly eight languages, if I'm not mistaken, and was so good at them that even native speakers of that language thought he grew up speaking that language. It's very gifted. Now, while at Oxford, though, he was studying theology to become a priest, um, the Bible was never actually made available for him to study. The Bible just wasn't really seen as very necessary in order to become a priest. And so it was uh, while he was there that the New Testament was printed in Greek by a scholar named Erasmus. Erasmus was a gentleman that compiled all the Greek manuscripts of his day and put them into one collection and, and printed them. And so it's often called Erasmus's um, Greek New Testament. William Tyndale gets his hands on this and starts studying it, having learned Greek, and he starts to read it and sees that it is more accurate in a much better Bible than the Latin Vulgate was. What's the Latin Vulgate? The Latin Vulgate was the Bible of that day, and it was the Bible of the Catholic Church and had been for 1,200 years. A gentleman named Jerome in the year 300, roughly, translated the Bible into Latin, and it stayed the Bible of the church up until that time and was considered kind of like the only Bible. If you've got some friends who are like King James only people and they tell you there is no other Bible but the King James, Moses came down from the mountain with two tablets that were in the King James. <laughs> it was kind of like that. That's the only Bible, according to the Roman Catholic Church of that day. So William Tyndale starts to read this Greek New Testament. Now, it was illegal to translate even one sentence of the Bible into English at that time. Unlike here in America, where we have many church denominations, in Tyndale's day, there was one church, only one, the Roman Catholic Church. It had been that way for a very long time, over a thousand years um, and that was your only option. That was it. If you want to go to church, it was going to be a Roman Catholic church. There was no separation of church and state in that day. What does that mean? Children, if you don't know what that means, basically the church had a lot of control over kings, over emperors, and for the most part worked hand in hand with them. There were many things that the church was doing that didn't line up with Scripture. Many things. So one of the main reasons why it was important for church leaders to keep the Bible in Latin was because the common man of that day didn't know Latin and couldn't learn it unless he had a lot of money so that he could afford to go one of, to one of the very expensive institutes of learning where it was taught. Otherwise, you didn't learn it. And so most people did not know Latin, only the elites of society. 
or unless you were a, a priest. So it was a way for the church, unfortunately, to keep control over the people. They kept the Bible in Latin, which meant it was a book with a question mark on the outside because it was unreadable. They could not understand it. The common narrative told by the priests was that the, the Bible was too difficult for the common man to understand, and so you need a priest to interpret it for you. In the late 1300s, of course this was before Tyndall's time, was the beginning of the attack on the English Bible. John Wycliffe, as I mentioned to you earlier, translated it from Latin. These copies were made by hand. If you wanted a copy of the Bible, someone had to write it out for you by hand, but they did that and they spread those Bibles all around. It was an inferior translation. It wasn't great, but it was something. Well, the Catholic Church hated that and they went after these men. They were called lollards. You might remember that from last year, which just means a babbler. It was, like a, it was like an insult because these people were known for just going around the countryside and just preaching out in the open. So they called them babblers, babblers which was lollards, confiscated as many of these Bibles as they could. And so in 1401, the parliament passed something called De Heretico Comburendo. Those of you who know Latin, this is on the burning of heretics. Heresy uh, was now punishable by you could burn someone at the stake because of this parliament that was passed. Bible translators were some of the main ones that were um, targeted in this new law. And so it was, uh, all that happened roughly 60 years before Luther even came on the scene. If you're kind of wanting to know where that happened in history, it's about 60 years before Martin Luther was even around when De Heretico Comburendo came out. Then, seven years later, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury created something called the Constitutions of Oxford, um, which were still in effect in Tyndall's day. They say this, it's a dangerous thing to translate the text of the Holy Scriptures out of one tongue into another, for in the translation the same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of scripture into English or any other tongue and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. So what does that mean? When you combine De Heretico and when you combine the constitutions of Oxford together, what that means is this. You could burn people for translating, owning, or even reading the Bible in English. That's what that meant. And that was the law of the land at that point because of those two documents. Well, it was while Tyndale was at Oxford studying this Greek New Testament that he became convinced of the truth of justification by grace alone through faith alone. For us, Protestants, that's an old truth. It's a precious truth, but it's the truth you have to believe to get in the club. That's the truth that we say is so precious to us because we know and believe that we're justified by grace alone, not from works of the law, not from any works we could ever do, by faith alone in what Jesus did for us. We cherish that truth. It is foundational to everything for us. Yes? In this day, it was alien. Those truths were not taught, believed, known. Unless you got your hands on a Bible and could read and see that that's what the Bible clearly teaches. That's what happened to William Tyndale. He heard, read uh, these truths of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Jesus Christ alone. 
And he longed for all men to be able to read and know these truths as well. This is what he said about justification. Neither can any creature loose the bonds of his sin, save by the blood of Christ only. By grace we are plucked out of Adam, the ground of all evil, and grafted into Christ, the root of all goodness. In Christ, God loved us, his elect and chosen before the world began, and reserved us into the knowledge of his Son and his holy gospel. And when the gospel is preached to us, it opens our hearts and gives us grace to believe and puts the Spirit of Christ in us, and we know him as our Father, most merciful, and consent to the law, and love it inwardly in our heart, and desire to fulfill it, and sorrow because we do not. This is a man who got it. He got this wonderful truth and he said, this is so precious and every man needs to know this. This truth for him was not only worth living for, it was worth dying for. Remember when Paul in the text I read said, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God to make the word of God fully known? This was what William Tyndale also got and understood as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After Oxford, he goes back to Gloucestershire, where he's from, and begins to live with a family, a couple, named Sir John and Lady Anne Walsh. And they hire him to tutor their children. Well, he is a very, very well-educated Oxford graduate. It takes him very little time to prepare to teach these children and to actually teach these children. So he's afforded a lot of time of leisure. So what's he do? He studies the scriptures heavily. Sir John and Lady Walsh, because they were wealthy, um, respected, it was very common, very, very common of them to have people, important people, come and, and, and eat with them, have supper with them, have dinner with them. It was very common. It happened often. There is one famous night where a priest comes, a Roman Catholic priest comes to eat with them. Well, of course, since he lives there, William Tyndale is at the table as well. The conversation gets heated because they start talking about the Word of God. And probably his, uh, well, let me just tell you what happened first, and I'll tell you about probably his, his second most famous quote he ever, he ever said. But just to show you how much the sentiment towards Scripture and the sentiment towards the Pope, um, just how much they were flip-flopped, Listen to what this priest said. We are better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. To which Tyndale replied, probably his second most famous quote he ever said. I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I shall cause the boy that drivest the plow to know more scripture than thou dost. I love that. <laughs> he looked right at a priest. And said, if God spares my life, let me, let me promise you something. I'll cause a plowboy to know the Bible better than you do. This was a Catholic priest. Talk about being zealous. Remember when you first got saved and you were just zealous for the truth and you just turned off all your friends? And Remember that? <laughs> that never turned off with, with William Tyndale. Well, Tyndall's outspoken convictions soon began to draw the attention of other local clergy. And Sir John and um, Lady Walsh, they began to fear for his safety. So, one possible way for William Tyndale to translate the Bible into English, there was one possible way, because... You might recall that when I read to you the Constitutions of Oxford, it stated, We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter, by his own authority, translate the text of Scripture. So, it was possible to get the approval 
of someone in the Catholic Church to do a work like this, and then he could do it. But he was going to have to, he was going to, have to say to them, it was like an academic study, just to translate it over into English. So what's he do? He goes to a man named Tunstall. He's the Bishop of London. He knows that Tunstall is a bit more sympathetic towards ideas like this than some other people, though he's not fully on board, but he's a little more sympathetic. So he goes to Tunstall with a a copy that he had translated, I forget, I think it was like Socrates or something. He translated it over into English, and he was like, wow, you did a really great job at this, but no, I'm not going to let you translate the Bible into English. Why? See, Tunstall was under the authority of a man named Cardinal, Cardinal Woolsey. Cardinal Woolsey was definitely, definitely against translating the Bible into English in any way at all. So Tunstall's hands were tied, even if he wanted to let him, which he sort of didn't, but even if he wanted to, he couldn't because of Cardinal Woolsey. So that attempt represented his last possible way to do God's work within the modern legal ways. So at that point, Tyndall realizes he's going to have to do God's work illegally. That happened in London, where Tyndall stayed for roughly a year. With a, um, This was after he moved out with um, Sir John and Lady Walsh. He, he moved in with a, a merchant named Humphrey Monmouth. He was very wealthy, this man. Tyndall's always getting to stay with these wealthy people. That must be pretty nice. Tyndall was also preaching while he was there in London. And this gentleman, Monmouth, became fully persuaded of the cause of reforming the church under the ministry of Tyndale. He liked William Tyndale. He was convinced by what he was saying about how the people need the Word of God in their own language. They need to be able to feed themselves the Word of God. Monmouth begins to fund William Tyndale's work. But he first has to fund his journey to Germany. He realizes he cannot stay in England and do this work. It's not possible for him. He's not going to be able to do it without getting caught in big trouble, perhaps killed. So Monmouth funds his journey to Germany... And both Tyndall and Monmouth knew that they knew full well that they were breaking the law. This was very illegal. Remember, because the church and the state were together. But like Peter said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. And so Monmouth also funded the first translation of the Bible. He, Monmouth, owned a large fleet of ships, and they were able to smuggle these Bibles from Germany over back into England. Now, at the same time, however, I want to mention this. At the same time that Tyndale was crossing the sea to go over into, Ger- into Germany, we know that there was a young man in the city of Norwich. It's north of London. He was burned alive. We know this. This is recorded. He was burned alive for owning a piece of paper that had the Lord's Prayer in English. They found it. They arrested him, and they burned him alive. So it was very wise for Tyndale to go to Germany Also, for this reason, in all of Europe at that time, there were about a thousand different printing presses. There were about a thousand different places that had printing presses that were printing things, all all kinds of things. Only two of them even existed in England, and neither one of them were very good. So it was also strategic of him to go to Germany, and especially the city of um, Cologne, That was 
strategic as well, but it was, it was by a, a large body of water. Ships could come and go easily. There was also a paper mill very close to there, so you could get as much paper as you wanted. And the printer that he started to use, that he ended up using, uh, was, was very good. It was a very good printer. His name was uh, Quintal. And so it was just a great place for him to be. Now, how did Tyndall do this? How did Tyndall produce a translation of the Bible that's hardly been improved upon even 500 years later and under such opposition? Let's talk about that for a second. You know, I think a lot of the time we want to answer a question like that by saying, well, obviously he was very gifted. I mean, Cohen, you said the guy can speak eight languages, so he's just very good with languages. It just came easy to him. It's true that he was gifted, but I want to also let you know that he worked hard to craft that gift. You and I sometimes, uh, when we see people that are gifted at something, they have a very, just a natural ability to do something very well without even trying very hard. What we usually find is they don't try very hard. Like For example, I know back in, in, in high school, I had some friends that were good at a certain subject. So guess what? They didn't study much because they were like, I don't have to study at all. I'm just good at this stuff. I'll just wing it, and I'll still get a B plus or an A minus. I barely have to study at all. Tyndall wasn't like that. He knew he was gifted, and so he also worked very hard in that area to become even better. Let me tell you this. <laughs> this is crazy. So that same gentleman, Erasmus, who was responsible for compiling all the Greek texts and making a Greek New Testament in his day, he wrote a book called De Copia. Now, you can hear from our English word copious, which means like fullness or, or overflowing. So this book was used at Oxford where Tyndall was educated to help students get to the, the fullness and all the possibilities that you could uh, mine out of, a, out of a language. Here's an example of one of the assignments from Decopia. Give 150 ways of saying, your letter has delighted me very much. Your letter has delighted me very, very much. They were required to write that sentence in 150 different ways. That's where men like Tyndale and men like Shakespeare, that's where they came from. This makes you a certain kind of person who truly understands what language can do, what language is capable of. Tyndall certainly labored hard to craft and make himself better in the area of language, even though he was gifted in that area. He labored hard. He worked with all his might, but it was also the Lord working powerfully in him to convince and convince him, I'm, I'm sorry, to convince and convict him of these truths that were worth living for and dying for. It's a lot like what Paul said in the text that I read in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. Him we, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he says this, For this I toil, Paul says, I toil, I labor, for this I labor, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So which is it, Paul? Is it you working hard or is, it, or is it the Lord's energy working powerfully through you? It's both. It's both. And that's what we saw, that's what we see in William Tyndale, a man who labored hard to get very good at language. Though he was gifted, but then we also see a man whom the Lord powerfully worked in. Here's some examples. Listen to, these are some of the phrases that William Tyndale chose in English to represent what he's found in the Bible, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, because he learned Hebrew later. We'll talk about that as well in just a bit. But if any of you have ever studied another language, you know that there's ways to communicate what you're reading in that language. There's, there's many different ways you, you can say it when you translate it. There's not just one way. There's the, a plethora of ways almost. 
So listen to some of these phrases and see if they sound familiar to your ears. See if you've ever quoted these. These are the words William Tyndale chose. Let there be light. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be merciful unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. I pray that. I use that as a prayer very often, except for thee and merciful, which we translate as gracious now. I use that all the time. That's, that's Tyndale. He chose those words in the English. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Tyndale. There were shepherds abiding in the field. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The signs of the times. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went out and wept bitterly. Those two words, wept bitterly, they've not been improved upon. In over 500 years, actually, hardly any of these have been improved upon in over 500 years. Our Bible translations still use these same phrases, especially wept bitterly. I looked at over a dozen different translations, and they've all retained, all the ones I looked at except for a few, retained wept bitterly, except the message Bible that said, he cried and cried and cried. That's what it says. Those of us who aren't just given to language, those of us who are not just naturally gifted in that area, you need to realize we really benefit from people who are, don't we? We really benefit from people who are gifted in the area of language. Here's a few more. A law unto themselves. In him we live, move, and have our being. Tyndale. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, fight the good fight. And the list of phrases like this that we quote freely goes on and on. They're all from the mind of William Tyndale. Martin Luther was um, credited in his 1522 translation of the Bible into German. He's been credited as having created a German language. What do they mean by that when they say that? Did he create the German language? No, he didn't. They were already speaking German. But when he translated the Bible into German, he solidified a standard of language for Germany. Germans used that Bible almost as as the textbook for future German language and such. Tyndale scholar and David Daniel. I'm not sure if he's still alive. He, he might be, but he's going to be very old now. He claims the same for William Tyndale in his works. It's one of his books that he wrote about William Tyndale. In Bible translations, Tyndale's conscious use of everyday words and his wonderful arithmetic pattern is to English, English, not Bible language, but a new prose. England was blessed as a nation in that the language of its principal book, as the Bible in English rapidly became, was the fountain from which followed the lucidity, suppleness, and expressive range of the greatest prose thereafter. His craftsmanship with the English language amounted to genius. He translated two-thirds of the Bible so well that its translations endure until today. Now, Tyndall, before he came, you can really say this, The truths of Scripture were locked up. They were locked up in the Latin Vulgate, and William Tyndale had the keys to unlock those truths. Once they were unlocked, that New Testament, and really later on the Bible, he wasn't able to translate all of it before he died, but that was the kindling that started the Reformation in England. The Reformation had already kind of been popping off in other countries around England, It was his work that caused it to start this fire in England. So in 1526, he translates his first New Testament, uh, printed and smuggled into England. Um, Monmouth, who had all those ships, I've heard two different ways they smuggled them in. 
Sometimes they smuggled the Bible in page by page between cloth, big, big cuts of cloth. The Bible pages were put in between there and just shipped and then bound once they got to England. I've also heard of other ways where they shipped the bound Bible, little bound New Testament, in wheat or corn and sent it off in the ships, and they were going across that way. Roughly 6,000 copies were made and immediately bought up in England. Um, it wasn't a large book. It was a small Bible by choice. This is an example of one of only two complete 1526 Tyndale New Testaments that we still have. But we'll talk about that in just a second, why there's only two left, uh, at least complete portions. Look how small it was. It could, it could fit in your hand. It could fit in your pocket. And that was on purpose because people would read these, carry them around in their pockets. They could hide them in their pockets. And then a man could read it out in the field, which they did. They would read it in the pubs. They would even read it in the back of churches during mass. <laughs> the Bishop of London learned of these Bibles and began to send out his police to raid homes, to arrest people that they found these Bibles with, and to confiscate these Bibles. The Bishop of London, um, which was the same man that he went to to try to get it approved. Remember that? Same man. How things flip, don't they? He gathered all these up and burned them. He burned so many of them that we only have two complete copies of that version the 1526 version left that we know of, complete copies. Two out of 6,000. He burned that many of them. He had a bonfire once out in the town and he preached a sermon about how Tyndall's translation had 2,000 errors because he found 2,000 differences between it and the Latin Vulgate. Well, of course it had differences. The Greek was a better translation than the Latin the Greek was the original. Tyndall wasn't dissuaded by this, saddened, of course, because people were being arrested, some even possibly killed. So he moves from uh, Cologne to uh, Worms, spelled Worms, but we pronounce it Worms, right, Brian? Worms. I say that, he's German. Uh, Worms was the center at that time of rabbinical learning, actually. There was uh, like rabbis, Jewish rabbis. It was a center of learning for them. And so he actually went there to learn Hebrew. And he learned Hebrew. And he translated Genesis through Deuteronomy into English and shipped those into England as well. And they got snatched up immediately. They, they were just, people were hungry for the word of God. After Worms, he moved to Antwerp, which is in Belgium. He stays at a place called the English House. What's the English House? It's sort of like a modern-day embassy. In Belgium, there's this place called the English House, and you could stay there if you were English, and I think it was almost like, like a learning center, too. It's a little different, but he had protection there, and a lot of people there were sympathetic to his cause, and they protected him. They hid him. And so, um, while he was there, he revises his 1526 translation of the New Testament and puts out uh, another one in 1534. Many, many of these were smuggled over into England, and uh, fewer of those were destroyed. So the Bible is now just spreading all over England, and they're just smuggling them in. And the authorities are just dumbfounded. How are all these getting here? <laughs> King Henry, Henry VIII, there's a song about him, was recognizing that Tyndale was uh, becoming very influential and was soon going to have more influence among the English than even he was having as king. So he said, I need to try to get this guy on my side. He tries to recruit him to become a part of like his court because he knows if he is, then he can control him. King Henry sends a messenger 
to Antwerp to find Tyndall. His name is Stephen Vaughn. Stephen Vaughn takes him a, a long time to find Tyndall, but he, he soon finds him, and they meet in a field under the cover of darkness in the, in, in the corner of a field to try to convince William Tyndall to come back. And they had a few of these meetings, and eventually Stephen Vaughn writes back and says, I find him always singing one note. What's that one note? It's this. This is what Tyndall wrote. Will the king of England give his official endorsement to a vernacular Bible? Children, vernacular means like just in the common tongue of the people. For all his English subjects, if not, I will not come home. And if so, I will give myself to him at any cost. That was the one note Tyndall kept singing. Will you allow for an English Bible? Will you allow for an English Bible? Will you allow for an English Bible? He never stopped singing that note. He's been in exile now for seven years. Seven years he's been away from England because he was fearful of his life. And what the king, it sounded like the king was extending mercy to him. So he again writes this, I assure you, if it would stand with the king's most gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text, meaning no Lutheran notes. A lot of the Bibles in that day came with uh, notes in the margin that were actually written by Luther, sort of like the first study Bible ever. And he says, not even that, just, just a bare text. If you'll grant just a bare text to be put among the people, like as is put forth among the subjects of these parts and other Christian princes, I shall immediately make faithful promise never to write more, but immediately return to his realm and there most humbly submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer what pain or, tur- or torture, yea, what death his grace wills. So this translation be obtained. Until that time I will abide the asperity of all chances whatsoever shall come and endure my life in as many pains as it is able to bear and suffer. The king refused. He said, forget you then. No, you're going to tell me what to do. I tell you what to do. Tyndall never went home again. Then something tragic happens. What tragedy comes? Just to let you guys know, are are y'all fading on me? I'm almost done. We're getting close. Hang with me. A tragedy happens. A man named Henry Phillips began showing up at the English house. Henry Phillips. He pretended to be an admirer of William Tyndale and even offered to help him with his work. So Tyndale began being nice to this man and uh, shows him his work, takes him in, even though he was being cautioned by many people there, hey, we don't know this guy, we don't know where he's from, you need to tread carefully here. Tyndale was a kind man and was trusting, and he trusted Henry Phillips. We know two things about Henry Phillips. We know two things about him. Number one, his father lived in West England and he entrusted Henry Phillips with all his money, all of it, to take it to London and put it with the bankers. So he sends his son on that trip. While Henry Phillips is making that trip with daddy's money, he gambles with it and loses all of it. So, the second thing we know is this. Somehow, Henry's dilemma comes to the attention of the new Bishop of London named Stokesley. He offers to pay this man, who's now very desperate to do anything to get his dad's money back. They see that and they capitalize on it. They say, we'll pay you money, a lot of money, if you'll go find William Tyndale, earn his trust, and make sure he gets arrested. Henry Phillips, being the horrible, nasty, degenerate man that he was, agrees. Once he gained his trust, Phillips invites Tyndale out to lunch for the day. That means Tyndale would have to leave the English house. The way Philip takes him 
to uh, Phillips takes him to lunch is down this um, alley, if you want to call it that, where you can only walk single file. He pretends to be a gentleman and let Tyndall go first. Tyndall does. They're going down this alley. When they come out, Henry Phillips had guards waiting there, and he points, and they arrest Tyndall. So Henry Phillips was the uh, Judas for William Tyndale. He's arrested. He's not sent back to England. He's taken to the Holy Roman Emperor's court in Belgium. He's accused of heresy, and he's thrown into a literal, real dungeon in the castle. The castle doesn't actually exist anymore, but it did back then, and he's thrown into a dungeon there. He spent the next 16 months in darkness, we know it's in darkness, and in cold, we know it was in cold. We know these things from history. He's not allowed to have his books. Most of his clothes are taken from him. They could confiscate your clothing from you, and they confiscated most of his clothing from him. He's almost daily bombarded by these men who keep visiting him in his prison there, and they are Catholic scholars, and they keep bombarding him, trying to get him to recant of his heresy. So he is starved, he's cold, in dark, he also begins to get sick, and this man is probably the greatest scholar in all of Europe at that time. And there he is, alone, cold, sick and half-naked in a dungeon cell for 16 months. We know that he wrote a letter while he was in there requesting that he could be given a light, meaning a candle source, uh, clothing, because he said he gets so cold. But he also asked if he could have some books so that he could keep learning Hebrew while he was in there. He wanted a Hebrew lexicon. As far as we know, none of these things were given him. There's some good news that came from that time, though. While he was in prison there, a Belgium uh, jailer and his daughter were both so taken by Tyndall's kindness and just person and words, because guess what? He also knew Belgium, (laughs) and he could speak to them. And they were converted by William Tyndale while he was in prison during that time. Isn't that cool? Let's now talk about William Tyndale's death. On the morning of October 6th, so we just came upon this anniversary. I sent you all out a text, remember, on October 6th, saying that this was the day that William Tyndale um, passed away for his crime of translating the Bible into English. October 6th, 1536. William Tyndale was 42. He never married. Guys, I'm 42. Who's who's my age? He was taken out of his cell. He was stripped of what little clothing he still had. He was tied to a stake. And because he was formerly a priest, and because he was also a scholar, they strangled him first. But before they strangled him, prior to burning his body, he said probably the most famous phrase he's ever said. There's actually a painting, picture made of it. Lord, open the King of England's... Open the King of England's eyes. That was his... As far as we know, that was the last sentence he said. After he was strangled, uh, he was burned. But within 10 months, within 10 months of his death, King Henry authorized a Bible in English for the people. It was called the Great Bible. Let me show you guys uh, this last picture here. It's, um, so William, William Tyndale's translation 
went on to influence not only the Great Bible, which is this very large Bible that was used in a lot of church pulpits and things like that. Some of the Bibles that you'll see that had chains on them, uh, chained to pulpits, those were great Bibles. A lot of those were called the Great Bible. Um, It also went on to influence the Geneva Bible. If you don't know much about that Bible, the Geneva Bible is the Bible that the pilgrims brought with them to America when they started their colonies. That was the Bible they brought over here. That was the Bible they were reading when they came over here. And then also his Bible translation went on to influence the 1611 King James Version Bible. A huge percentage of all three of those Bibles are the words of William Tyndale, are his translations, just borrowed and plopped right down. They could not improve upon them. A very large percentage of all those Bibles are the words of William Tyndale, the translations, of course, of of William Tyndale. They're the words of God. If you don't mind, I want you to pick up your Bible for a second. If you have a Bible, if you don't have one, grab one from the pew pocket in front of you. I still call these pews. from the chair pocket in front of you. And just hold it. And uh, realize how special it is while we watch this, uh, while we watch this clip. The Bible continues to outsell any book that has ever been published. Wherever it is read with an open and hungry heart, it brings understanding, joy, satisfaction, and an awareness of God's love for each individual. That we can read it in English is due in large part to a man whose vision and love for others far surpassed personal concern for his own well-being. Tyndale, we know, gave his life for translating the Bible. We must always remember when we hold a modern English Bible in our hands that the English Bible was made in blood. It's very important to remember that. At the same time, we rejoice that what Tyndale opened has never been shut up since. It's always there. Father, we thank you very much for the fact that we do have your word given to us in a language we can understand. But we thank you very much that it has come to us. And as we learned this day, it's come to us in blood. So we're grateful for our brothers and sisters of old who stood on the truth and knew that it was not only worth living for, but worth dying for. Lord, I pray, please, give us a renewed appreciation. We have a great appreciation for the Word of God. Give us a renewed appreciation for the Word of God in our own language. We pray this in Jesus' name. 